FX Medicine is your gateway to resources, research and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Stay current by visiting fxmedicine.com.au to register for our email newsletter and exclusive members-only content. Welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we record today. I would also like to pay my respects to Elders past and present. I'm Emma Sutherland and joining us on the line today is Dr. Gastroenterologist and New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Will Bulsevitz, also known as Dr. B. He sits on the Scientific Advisory Board of ZOE, has authored more than 20 articles published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, and has taught over 10,000 students how to heal and optimize their gut health. Today, we'll be discussing the topic of the gut terrain, host defense, and how to think outside the box when working with patients. Welcome to FX Medicine, Dr. B. Thank you, Emma. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, me too. Now, you specialize in gut health. Can you share with us what inspired you to focus on this area of clinical practice? That's an interesting story, uh, and I will try to condense down what could be, like I I talk about this all day, so I'm just going to kind of cut to the chase. So I started this journey into medicine when I was a teenager, and I'm 42 years old right now. Mm -hmm. And if we went back to like 2004 or five, I discovered gastroenterology, which mm-hmm. is my specialty now. And I fell in love. I fell in love with the different organs. To me, it's like so exciting to become the expert on the esophagus, stomach, the small intestine, the colon, the liver, the pancreas. Mm. So I didn't really think of it as going into any sort of gut health specialty, to be honest with you, Emma. I made the decision. This is what I wanted to do. And I worked towards this goal. And I really, truly sacrificed my own health in the interest of trying to complete this goal of medical training in the United States. Mm. I was 20 kilos overweight Wow! and yeah. having health issues. So that was in my early 30s. And I needed a fix. And part of this was a life intervention. I, I feel like God presented my wife to me. Like <laughs> I met the person who's now my wife. And I didn't know that this was going to be so transformative. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and she was eating plant-based. And it just kind of piqued my curiosity. And I just, I was like, you know what? Let me try. Mm. And it started with a smoothie and it escalated where slowly over time, like years, Mm. my diet transformed into a plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. And as this was happening, I was paying attention to the science of the microbiome. And the science was explaining what happened in my life because I lost 20 kilos. I, you know, got rid of my blood pressure problem and my cholesterol problem. I got rid of my depression issues Mm -hmm. by changing my diet. And I started to understand, you know, I was the doctor, but I was also the patient. I needed the help. And what I discovered was, wow, what happened for me was probably because of my gut. Mm -hmm. So... 
that is what inspired me to start this journey that like, this was not a plan. I didn't know this was going to happen. I just kind of started a social media account and then I started to do podcasts much like yours. Mm. And actually a big moment for me was 2018 when I went on Simon Hill's podcast in Australia. Ah, yes. And it went viral. Yeah, I've listened to that. And that podcast from 2018 is what allowed me to get a book deal. And then the book deal turned into my first book, Fiber Fuels, which is now 300,000 books sold. Yeah, well, we're all very grateful that you ended up on this journey. And, you know, your story is also about the power of food as medicine, which is one of my passions, the incredible impact that food has uh, on our bodies. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that what it comes down to is I want people to understand that you are the product of your environment. Mm. And there's so many elements to this environment, but part of the environment is actually your food choices. And that food, all of it, is going to come into contact with your gut microbes. Mm. And it's going to shape what your microbiome looks like. Mm. And the issue is whether we're talking about supplements or medications, either way, the reality is that a couple of milligrams is not going to overpower you know, the kilogram of food that you ate during the day. Mm. So the point is that we should really look to kind of get to the root of what is affecting our health. Yeah, I love this holistic framework because this is exactly how as clinicians, integrated clinicians, that we view things, which is great. Look, I'd really love to set the scene a little bit today. So we have the germ theory from Louis Pasteur, which says pathogens take up residence in the body and cause harm. And then we have the terrain theory by Antoine Béchamp, which says the health of the individual will dictate how severe an infection will be. Now, I feel personally that as clinicians, we tend to have a focus on eradicating microorganisms from the gut instead of actually harnessing the power of the gut terrain itself. But I'd love to know what your thoughts are with this. I completely agree with you. And I think that to build upon the historical elements that you nicely laid out there, the reality is that Louis Pasteur's work was completely transformative because people did not, and we're not even talking about that long ago. We're Mm. talking about like the 1860s. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, this is less than 200 years ago where prior to this, people thought when we got sick, like for example, the plague in Europe, when we got sick, they thought it was like this supernatural phenomenon. They didn't understand that there was actually a scientific explanation for what was happening. Right. And so Louis Pasteur opened our minds around 1900. The top causes of death were not heart disease and cancer. Mm. They were all infections. And we didn't have many tools at that point to really fight those infections. We're talking about things like influenza and gastroenteritis, meaning that like you have diarrhea from bad water Mm. or pneumonia. You could imagine, Emma, where all of a sudden, right around World War II, we discover penicillin. Imagine how much your mind would be blown (laughs) if you realized that you could put a pill into a person's mouth and actually kill the number one source of death and disease affecting them. Mm. Like that was insane for that period of time. And the problem is that we became so seduced by the power of the pill and so convinced that the way to win was to kill. Mm Mm-hmm rather than to build up, that 
we spent the next 60, 70 years bringing us really into the 21st century. We spent this entire time based upon this premise. If it's bad, kill it. Yeah. Take the pill. The pill is stronger than anything else. And what we lost in the process, what we lost sight of is that if you lean into your daily habits, your daily diet and your lifestyle, you have the power to prevent disease because you're getting to the root of the issue in the first place. You're preventing it before it ever happens. Mm. And that is always more powerful and that is always preferred instead of waiting until you actually have a crisis on your hands and trying to correct it with some medication or some surgery or some antibiotic or whatever it may be. Yeah, the true definition of preventative medicine right there. Absolutely. And the problem is that we built our healthcare systems. And I, I believe that this is true in the entire industrial world, including the US, including Australia, including the UK. We built reactive healthcare systems. Mm. We wait until you're sick. And then the doctor, like myself, shows up with a prescription pad mm. and gives you something to get you out of the mess. And the problem is that we would be saving a lot of lives, a lot of money, and we would have happier and healthier populations if we started the intervention much earlier in the process. Don't wait until people are sick. Do it now. Do it today. And that's part of what my message is to the listeners who are hanging out with you and I right now is like, today's the day. Mm -hmm. We can start. Let's do this. And let's build a healthy life. And it's not about something radical. It's not about having to be perfect. It's quite simply make one choice today that you think is good for your body that you deserve. And if we do this day by day, we're going to start to build some amazing habits that are going to change our lives. Yeah. Now, I would really love to deep dive into this concept of the host terrain and how we can influence this to optimize gut health. So as clinicians, you know, what can we do? But, you know, first of all, let's just back it up a little bit. Can you talk us through what's meant by the terrain and, and what, it, what constitutes the terrain? Well, I think that the way that we think about this is to first acknowledge that there's such tremendous bio-individuality. Mm. We're so unique. And you can see this reflected in identical twins, where they have the exact same genetic code, they come from the same parents, and in most cases, they're raised in the same home, eating the same meals. Mm. And yet, they can have very different health outcomes. What is this? What explains this? And that's what leads us into a conversation about the terrain or if we want to speak about the microbiome. Mm. Because what we have discovered is that covering your body everywhere are microbes. Mm. And so these microbes, they coexist with us. We have what we would describe as a symbiotic relationship, meaning that we do things to help them. And on the flip side, they do things that help us. And if we think about human evolution, there was never a moment in human history where we were missing the microbes. They were our partner through it all. And when you think about these microbes specifically, and most importantly, the gut microbes, mm -hmm. these microorganisms live predominantly in our colon, and they are deeply intertwined with human physiology, like we need them mm. in order to properly digest our food, in order to optimize our immune system and maintain our metabolism and balance our hormones and maintain our mood, our cognition, our memory, and even the way in which we express our genetic code. So going back to the twins, you could have two identical twins. They could have different medical issues. 
Mm. And the reason why is not genetic. They have the same genetics. The reason why is because they have different microbes. And the research shows, Emma, that even in identical twins, they only share about 37% of the same microbes. So they are more different than they are the same. And so when we speak about the terrain and the terrain theory, the idea here is that there are these microorganisms that cohabitate with us and that they play a really central role in human physiology, again, connected to digestion, metabolism, immune system, hormones, mood, brain health. And when they're in balance and they're in harmony, they're able to do their job the way that they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And the issues that come up are any many times because there's a loss of balance within the system. Yeah, I think this concept of the symbiotic relationship between humans and microbes is fascinating, and particularly how critical those microbes are for digesting food, maintaining metabolism, balancing hormones, maintaining mood. I mean, we cannot survive without them. So as clinicians, how do we help support that terrain? I mean, clinically, for example, I see many patients with low secretory IgA, and it really makes me wonder about that interplay between secretory IgA and host defence. Can you give us your thoughts right. here on, on secretory IgA and host defence? Well, uh, our body produces different types of these immunoglobulins. There's many different types. IgA is predominantly produced in mucous membranes, mm-hmm. um, and that would include within your gut. And that's where this becomes very relevant to our immune defences within our gut is specifically this IgA, but there's other types that people have heard of, which include IgM Mm. and IgG, which are antibodies that are created in response to some sort of stimulus. It could be, you know, it could be a virus, like it could be COVID, right? Now, this IgA is connected to these microbes that live inside of our colon, and there's varying levels of what people can have. But I, I, I tend to agree with you that I think that One of the issues that exists is that when we are out of balance with our microbiome, it can ultimately affect these other elements, one of them being secretory IgA, but Mm -hmm. I would also bring into the equation other elements to our immune system and the way in which our immune system interacts with these microbes. I think that the real take-home story from my perspective is that it's nearly impossible to separate the microbiome from our immune system. And when the body is in balance, meaning that the microbiome is in balance, and that's the case, then these things are working the way that they're supposed to, which includes secretory IgA, but also other elements of our immune system in order to maintain that balance and protect us, not just from viruses, but also protecting us from ourselves and excessive amounts of inflammation that can be problematic over decades. Yeah, I mean, inflammation is absolutely one of the big root cause drivers of chronic diseases. And, you know, it does begin in the gut in many cases that we see in clinic. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think that part of it is that the gut is designed in a way when we're properly supporting these microbes, they are able to produce the anti-inflammatory molecules. Specifically, I'm referring to the short chain fatty acids. Mm. And these short-chain fatty acids are effectively the way in which the microbes are able to communicate to our body. And so we really want our microbes to be cranking out like a chemical factory, these short-chain fatty acids, which have anti-inflammatory properties 
and help to keep our immune system in check. Mm. And in order for that to happen, you need a healthy gut and you also need to support that gut with dietary fiber because dietary fiber is the precursor to the production of short chain fatty acids. Mm. So this is where you, you know, you ask as a clinician, how do we, how do we approach this? And yeah. I think where it begins is diet because, you know, I'm, I'm heralding fiber as the precursor to these anti-inflammatory short chain fatty acids. You need the fiber in order to make them. Mm. And mm. in the United States, 90, 95% of people are deficient in fiber. Wow. And it's not nearly, it's not quite as bad in Australia, but it's still bad. Mm. 85% or so of people in Australia are deficient in fiber. So we have a problem where we're just not doing what we need to from a dietary perspective in order to support these microbes, which in turn support our body. Mm, yeah, going back to that symbiotic relationship and the give and take between the host and the microbe, it's essential that we have this dietary fibre coming in at certain levels, you know. But what about that protective mucus layer that lines the gut itself, you know, the mucus secreted by the goblet cells? What are the functions of that mucus layer? Like, you know, it's a structural thing, but is it functional as well? It is functional. So if we were to zoom in with a microscope and mm. take a look at the mining of our gut, what we would see, first of all, is that there's a single layer of cells called the epithelial layer. Mm-hmm. And this separates the lumen, meaning the inner tube of the intestine, from the body. And it's intended to be a barrier. On one side of the epithelial layer is your gut and your gut microbes. And around this area, there is the mucus layer that you're referring to. And this mucus layer, it includes specific microbes that actually we don't tend to pick up when we do stool testing. Okay because they're built into the mucus layer. So they're not necessarily moving through. They're kind of staying more present in the mucus. We may get some shedding of them, but for the most part, it's more challenging for us to detect them. And in addition, this is where you may find the secretory IgA and other peptides, proteins, and other biologic products that sort of line the intestine and are located in this general area. Mm-hmm. The mucus layer is intended to be part of our protective barrier. So when it's healthy and thick, which actually comes from having a healthy microbiome and a healthy diet, then this is another layer that helps to protect us from pathogens or things like bacterial endotoxin, which are produced by some of the microbes. Bacterial endotoxin is something that actually triggers inflammation in the body when it gets into the bloodstream. So this is all part of the sort of gut barrier complex that exists. Mm -hmm. Part of it is the microbes themselves and the microbes being in balance. When they're in balance, you have more good guys than than you have bad guys. When they're in balance, those microbes are being fed and producing short chain fatty acids. And then part of this is the physical anatomy, which includes the mucus layer, as well as this epithelial layer that is fused together with these tight junction proteins to prevent what, you know, many people would describe as leaky gut. Mm. So what we want, you know, I'm describing this as balance. And the technical term that a person would use is eubiosis. And eubiosis basically means that things are in harmony and that you don't have increased intestinal permeability. And the flip side of eubiosis is dysbiosis, which many people sometimes will use the term leaky gut. 
but I prefer to sort of describe it as dysbiosis because sometimes there are some differences between leaky gut and, and dysbiosis. Mm-hmm. And are there specific probiotics strains that help maintain the barrier of the gut lining? There are. And, you know, the term probiotic, I think that we need to expand our understanding of this term. Because when we think of probiotic, I think almost all of us immediately have a mental image of a powder inside of a capsule that we're going to swallow. Yeah. And that is a probiotic. But additionally, when we ferment food, fermentation is the process of transformation within food that occurs as the result of processing by living microbes, specifically and typically a combination of bacteria and yeast. But here's the point, though. A probiotic is a living microorganism that has been demonstrated in clinical research to have benefits to humans. So there are many, and some of them are ones that are commercially available to take as a capsule. But again, if you consume fermented food, there are probiotics in there. Mm -hmm. And within your body, there are probiotics that already exist, that are already present, and we can support them and build them up through proper dietary choices. And this is not to disparage or reduce the value of taking the probiotics in a capsule. Mm. It's more to say that I actually think that we should be doing a combination of all these things. So I think that we should be supporting the microbes that live inside of us with prebiotics. Yeah. Prebiotics are the nutrition that support microbes. So we should support those probiotics that are already there, build them up. But number two, we should also be consuming fermented food. There's Research that's come out in recent years suggesting that by simply adding more fermented food to your diet, you can increase the diversity within your microbiome and reduce measures of inflammation. So I sincerely believe that we should all be consuming fermented food. This can be challenging, by the way, for people that have histamine intolerance, but that's not the majority of people. The majority of us should be adding fermented food. And then the third thing is the role of probiotics that come in a capsule form. Yeah. And there are many different types. And it can be quite overwhelming trying to figure out which one to take. So let me just kind of share briefly the way that I tend to approach this as a gastroenterologist. Mm. When you are taking a probiotic supplement, from my perspective, in the vast majority of cases, there should be some sort of motivation that you have. There should be a reason why you're doing this. Like, Mm. I want to reduce bloating, you know, or I want to improve my irritable bowel syndrome. Mm Mm-hmm. And so these are examples of a specific goal that you have in mind. The first step is to say, okay, now that I know what I'm trying to accomplish, is there a probiotic that has been demonstrated in clinical research studies to improve this specific issue that I have? And if the answer is yes, then that's the one that you want to start with Mm -hmm. because it's been shown through ideally a clinical trial that people benefit from this probiotic for that particular reason. So regardless of whichever probiotic you end up trying, Mm. it's impossible to know whether this is going to work or not work until you try. So there has to be an element of trial and error. I typically will recommend that you try it for a month or two and you pay attention to your symptoms. And if they improve, it's working Mm. and it's integrating with your unique microbiome in a way that's beneficial. Yeah. But on the flip side, like, we have different microbiomes and it's impossible to know, even if something's proven in a clinical trial, it's impossible to know whether or not it's going to work for you. Mm. Yeah. Essentially, Dr. B, you're saying, you know, first and most importantly, define the goal. 
work out exactly what it is that you're aiming to treat with your patient. Next, find a probiotic strain that has clinical evidence of benefit and is obviously more likely to give a positive outcome. Trial it for a month, grade your symptoms before and after and see what, if any, benefit it's been. If there has been a benefit, continue. If not, discontinue and work in a different way. Because it can be a minefield, you know, often patients come in to see us and they bring in a bag full of supplements and probiotics and all kinds of things. And and as clinicians, we really have to help educate our patients on strain-specific probiotics and the research that is behind them and therefore more likely to work. But I think it comes back to if you're not doing the basics, such as eating fibre and fermented foods, then it's really the icing on the cake most of the time. Yeah, I mean, I think, Emma, that if you have a uh, C-minus gut (laughs) and you're not taking advantage of the opportunity to enhance your diet or enhance your lifestyle, sleep, exercise, time outdoors, stress reduction, like if you're not taking those opportunities and you're just taking a probiotic, the reality is you're not going to go from a C-minus to an A-plus by taking any supplement. Yeah. But supplements definitely have value. There is no doubt. I've had many patients that have benefited from probiotics, from prebiotics, and from other supplements. Mm. The key here is the foundation is the diet. And the other thing is like not all probiotics are the same. So Mm. like you go to your doctor and you say, I tried a probiotic and it didn't work. The question for me is which probiotic, and that doesn't mean the other probiotics won't work either. That just means that that one probiotic didn't work. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. And, you know, I wanted to dive into prebiotics because I'm fascinated by this world because I feel we all need to know more about it. And I was reading a recent review from 2021 that looked at the bidirectional relationship between immune cells, gut epithelial cells and intestinal disease development. And it suggested we should think of the epithelial cells as the moderator between the microbiota and the immune system, which we sort of spoke about before. But I specifically wanted to discuss the use of prebiotics in this space. And in 2017, the International Scientific Association for Pro probiotics and prebiotics amended the definition of a prebiotic to a substrate that is selectively utilized by host microorganisms conferring a health benefit. How can we use different types of prebiotics to help support gut health? I mean, as clinicians, you know, we're looking at partially hydrolyzed guar gum. We've got FOSS, we've got GOSS. I mean, there's so many for us to choose from. How do we know which right. one is best for what? Well, that is a really good question. And there's complexity to it because much like the probiotic, if we're going to get into individual monofibers, mm. so monofiber meaning that it is a fiber in isolation that in a way has been purified and then put into a supplement. Yeah. And by the way, I think this stuff is great. I mm. personally use them on a daily basis and I don't use them to try to fix problems. I use them because I want to prevent problems and I wholeheartedly believe in the science. Yeah. But if you want to know like which one should I reach for, once again, what we come back to is conceptually similar to the probiotic. You have to ask the question, what am I trying to accomplish? Am I trying to accelerate bowel transit and improve constipation? Am mm. I trying to improve diarrhea and actually form up the stool? Am I trying to address bloating and other food intolerances? These are different questions. These are different goals. Mm. And so specific prebiotic fibers 
may have added benefit or specific benefits to specific issues. Now, that being said, let's just make a general statement about different types of fiber. Okay. Because fiber is a carbohydrate. Mm. It is a series of sugar molecules that are linked together in a highly complicated way. And it doesn't get broken down into sugar. In fact, your body lacks the enzymes necessary to break down fiber. Mm. Because since you can't break it down, then you know that the fiber will come into contact with your microbes. And fiber is so intensely complicated from a biochemical perspective. Even scientists have thrown their hands up and said, we don't know how many types of fiber exist in nature. We just don't know. But we do know that there are these two main types, soluble and insoluble. Mm. So the behavior of these two types of fiber is a bit different. Soluble fiber tends to be the fermentable fiber. And what that means when we say fermentable is that your microbes have enzymes that they can use to break down this fiber. Mm, okay. This is why some people, when they change their diet and they start eating more plants, they may experience some bloating in the very beginning, but then after a couple of weeks, that gets better and it goes away. This is because their body is adapting to the dietary change they've made because they're eating more fiber. Mm. So this soluble fiber is the kind that ultimately gets transformed into the short-chain fatty acids that about 15 or 20 minutes ago, I was heralding as being these anti-inflammatory molecules. Mm. So we want the soluble fiber. Now, the insoluble fiber is the type of fiber that's less active in terms of the microbiome, but it does play a role in terms of maintaining our bowels and our bowel movements and keeping things moving through. Yeah, okay. And that's very important. So every plant has fiber. Every plant has many different types of fiber that include both of these things that I'm describing, soluble and insoluble. But what is interesting is that these different types of fiber will feed different families of microbes. Mm -hmm. And so this is why we see, like, you can't say that partially hydrolyzed quark gum is the same as acacia powder mm, okay. or inulin, right? They are different because they're different forms of fiber. So the key concept is this, from a dietary perspective, don't worry about getting one specific type of fiber when it comes to diet. Instead, think about getting as many types of fiber as possible. Because when you have many types of fiber, meaning that you are consuming many varieties of plants, you are actually providing a nutrition source, an energy source to many different families of microbes. A diverse diet will feed a diverse gut microbiome, and a diverse gut microbiome is exactly what we want to have because that is a resilient, strong microbiome. When it comes to supplements, mm. start low. If you have serious digestive issues, that could be literally a quarter of a teaspoon. Yeah, yeah. And then slowly work your way up from there. And when it's working, you're going to know. And the way that you know is, I mean, it could be symptoms. Mm. But the other thing that's great is if fiber is doing its job, you're going to experience a change in your bowel movement. Yeah, I have and to you say have, like, one thing, Dr. B. Go that, ahead, Emma. Yeah, one thing that patients often will say to me when we're working in this space, they come back and they're amazed. They're like, 
Well, I'm actually having a bowel motion twice a day. It's type four. I'm kind of voiding completely. And they look at me and they go, where was all that going before? (laughs) They're just gobsmacked about how much, you know, their bowels are actually going now. I mean, that to me is a beautiful thing because the body was meant to be in rhythm. Your gut was designed to regularly pass bowel movements. You know, I don't want to stress people out where they are like, oh, well, I'm not pooping as much as Dr. B says I should. Yeah. There, are, there are many different ways. And if you feel good, that's okay. Yeah. But I think the point, though, is like we all think that pooping once a day is normal. And I would say, no, that's not normal. That may be normal in 2023. Mm. But during the course of human history, we were probably pooping two, three, four times a day because mm. we we're getting so much fiber. Correct. It may be normal in the current diet, the Western diet, to not be voiding your bowels, you know, more than once a day. But yeah, that that makes complete sense. And I wanted to ask what you thought of spore-based probiotics. What are they? And and do you find them useful or not? Spore-based probiotics are specific types of microbes, bacteria. The kind that we're referring to tend to be from the family Bacillus. Mm. And the idea here is that the microbe actually can exist in different forms. You can almost think of it like in the U.S. we would call them a roly-poly or you could think about something like an armadillo. I'm trying to think in my mind of an Australian animal that fits like this. But the point I'm trying to get at is think of an animal that rolls into a ball to protect itself. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what the spore-based probiotic is, is that it can roll into a ball to protect itself. And it becomes more hardy and resilient when it's in that form. Okay. And then it will open up and no longer be in this ball formation and then can do its effect as a probiotic. Okay. The thing about spore-based probiotics is that they're a unique class of probiotics. Mm. For some people, they're going to find that these work better for them. And the amount of research on spore, there's they're sort of a newer Uh, entry into the market of probiotics. Mm, mm. So we're not seeing as much research. There's not as much research on these specific types of probiotics yet. It's coming. We'll continue to see more. And I am very open-minded to the idea that if you try this and it works and you feel better, that's what you need. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether there's a clinical trial to back that up. So that's the way that I feel about it. And I, I think these are fair to try as a part of that trial and error approach that you and I are discussing. Yeah, exactly. And particularly if patients have not had positive benefits using other probiotic strains, this could be a more novel use for these bacillus spore-based probiotics for those people. Exactly, because they're a little bit different. So I think that little difference that exists there for some people, that may, they may prove that that is very relevant to them and beneficial. That's, mm. a, that's a great thing. I celebrate that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... One of the things that I want to bring forward, our body is not just like, hey, more of this is always better. Our body is instead like, hey, this is the sweet spot that we want to get to with all of these things. Mm. And so with dietary fiber, with fiber in general, when you change your diet, you should be prepared that you may experience some symptoms. And that's not a long-term thing. That's a temporary thing. Yeah. And the reason why that's happening is that it comes back to something you and I discussed that I want to emphasize as we're about to close out. We are 100% dependent on our microbes Mm. to digest fiber. 
So if your microbes are not in a good place, like you are the person who has irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, and they're not in a good place, when you add more fiber to your diet, you are asking them to do more work and they are struggling to do this. Yeah. When you add more fiber to your diet, I like the expression, start low, go slow. Mm. So when you gently introduce a little more fiber, you are changing your diet, but it's a small change. And your gut microbes are more likely to keep up with small changes. Mm -hmm. And so they will adapt and they will become completely comfortable with this small change. And then you add another small change. Mm -hmm. Your gut is so adaptable. It is so capable of transforming and mm. becoming stronger. And this is the process. And it's much like exercise. When you go to the gym, you wouldn't start out with the heaviest weights on your first day in the gym. Mm. You would start with the amount that you're actually capable of doing. And when you work, you get stronger. And then you come back in a couple of days and you can work a little bit harder. And the same is true with your gut. Your gut is a muscle. It can be trained. It can be made stronger. And the process is very similar to exercise, which is start low, go slow, gently increase your fiber over time, give your gut a chance to come along for the ride with you to adapt to what you're doing. Mm. And you will not experience those symptoms that I'm describing. And your gut will get stronger. And what you will discover is that over the course of time, your ability to process and digest your food will improve and you will notice the health benefits in terms of how you feel. And I think that appeals to our patient's ability to integrate change and to get compliance from our patients, to do it step by step with them rather than asking them to go from zero to 100 in one go, that, that you're not going to get compliance continuously and long-term with that approach. So I love that strategy, Dr. B. You know, Emma, I kind of feel like the direction towards health is not that mysterious. Yeah. There are many forms of a healthy diet. There are many forms of a healthy lifestyle. But quite simply, when we construct these things, what it looks like, a diet that includes a lot of plants, mm. a lot of fiber, but ideally we're really minimizing the ultra-processed foods. Yeah. We're getting our sleep. We're moving our body. We're engaging with other humans and being social. We're working on our stress. We're spending time outdoors, right? Like these are the basic tenets of a healthy lifestyle. And I think we all know that. And so the problem is that it's not that easy to do. Mm. And we need a process for how to get there. So let's focus on how do we get there? What does the journey look like? How can I be successful? How can I deal with it when I have a bad day? Right. And ultimately, through perseverance and persistence and consistency, you will build yourself up to a point where you are capable of becoming something that's incredible. But in order to get there, you have to take this journey and take it one step, one day at a time. Yeah, so true. Goodness me, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. V. I have so many key points, but I think my top three. Oh, okay. So the critical role of the gut terrain and, and how we as clinicians, we can really use targeted therapies like dietary fiber, fermented vegetables, specific pre and probiotics to harness that host defense and strengthen the gut. Secondly, how prebiotics can be utilized to influence the gut towards a more anti-inflammatory profile. And thirdly, diet and hence fiber diversity is key for a diverse microbiome. 
I think they're my three key takeaways, Dr. B. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. No, I, I completely agree with those three key takeaways. Yay. And um, it's exciting. This is a great time because we are we are more empowered with information than we've ever been in the course of human history. Yeah. So it could be so simple as, hey, sometime this week, take a meal and let's add more varieties of plants to that one meal. Yeah. And you know what? I'm dancing with joy. I'm so excited for you. <laughs> I love that. The cheese squad on the sidelines. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget, you can find all the show notes, transcripts, and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website, fxmedicine.com.au. I'm Emma Sutherland, and thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Did you know Bioceuticals has a clinic-only range developed for exclusive use by clinicians? This product range offers complex formulas, higher doses, and specific ingredients for specialised cases. Bioceuticals Clinical infuses quality, credibility, innovation and professionalism into an exclusive product range that meets the needs and demands of private clinicians. Visit bioceuticals.com.au to learn more.